The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Thank you, Harvest family, and uh, I am honored to be here with you this morning, honored that uh, Todd would ask, and we are privileged to... Uh, to partner together in this greatest cause in the universe, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool that we get to be a part of that? And uh, we're honored. It's, God uses so many different churches and different expressions of the church. And we're grateful to be here in this beautiful city of Barrie ministering alongside of you and partnering with you. And boy, I'll tell you, I would have loved to just stayed with the high five group here. You don't have to put up with me. Weren't they great? Can we say thank you to those children again? And I don't know, Pastor, Pastor Jordan's got a few moves there, you know, he's, he's got some rhythm, I think, he's doing okay, so it is an honor, you are part, I'm part of a series here today in the Psalms, Out of the Depths, and the Psalms are a beautiful book of the Bible, um, you know, when you think about the inspired scriptures, so much of the scriptures speak directly from God down to us, but the Psalms, the prayer book of the scriptures is us speaking to God, isn't it? And, um, and, and you can put your face right in those psalms. You say, that's how I feel. I feel just like that psalmist in thanksgiving, in lament, uh, in struggle, in joy, in all those different emotions that we feel on the journey of our faith with the Lord. So that's a great thing. And we get to look at a really special psalm this morning. Uh, it's a deeply personal psalm, a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. And we'll be looking at that in just the next few moments. I want to begin with a quote by A.W. Tozer, who wrote this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that for a minute. What comes into your mind when you think about God? He went on to say these words, We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. In other words, we become what we behold. What we love changes us, right? What we fixate upon, the way we see God shapes the way we see the world, the way we see our lives. Your vision of God will radically impact every part of your life. For instance, if you see God as a mighty being, that is uninvolved in your life, then you will study him as an object to be admired from a distance. You may fear him, but you will never know his love that changes you from the inside out. Religious conformity, rather than a life-transforming relationship, will be the way you approach God. On the other hand, or secondly, if your vision of God is a, a sort of small G God, a domesticated, manageable God, sort of a souped up one of us, right? Then he'll be someone that you take kind of casually, you take sin lightly, you see God as more your kind of servant to help you get your agenda done. You know, he's kind of a good luck charm or he's someone that you have in your back pocket when you need something, when you want something. 
You see, your vision of God really impacts everything about your life. Distorted visions of God lead to distorted living. It's crucial then for us to have this proper vision of who God is, who he's revealed himself to be, so that we can be what God wants us to be. Friends, God is great beyond our comprehension. He is good beyond our imagination. Knowing God as both great and good, as transcendent and yet imminent near is our deepest need. And the psalm we are going to study is going to talk to us about this. It's a beautiful psalm. Psalm 139. If you haven't turned there in your Bibles, I invite you to turn there now. And it gives us this intimate, great, mighty image of God, but also an intimate image of God's goodness to us. It's a psalm of David. It's a powerful presentation, as I mentioned, of the majestic nature and being of the sovereign God. But it's more than that. It's teaching us that this greatness of God is something we get to taste and savor. God being so far away and distant from us has come near to us and wants to be an intimate relationship. God is great, but he's also good. Good. He's about love as well as greatness. And so what we're going to see that God is all perceiving, all present, all powerful, and yet this one that's so other than us wants to be near us in relationship with us. Here's the big idea for our message this morning. Our great God is a good God who knows us, sees us, and loves us perfectly. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And as we look into it, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher today. Lord, that you would be the focus of the attention today that you would receive all glory in this place. Thank you that when you are glorified, it is for our good. And so we ask that you would truly be magnified in this place today, that we would see you as you are, that we would encounter you and be changed by you, by your spirit from the inside out. God, be honored as we open your word together, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the, the very first point we need to make here in the first six verses is that the all-perceiving one knows each of us inside and out. Look at the first six verses of Psalm 139. David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And then he responds, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Verse 1 really is not just a theological point that David's making here, a doctrinal point. This is a cry of worship, of praise. God, the all-seeing, all all-perceiving God is someone who knows me. Little speck of me in the universe. This great all-perceiving God knows me better than I know myself. 
What has caught David's imagination is not simply the reality that God is who he is and so great, but this one that is so great, so full of knowledge, knows him personally. He searched every nook and every cranny of my being. He knows every subtle motive of my heart. He sees everything seen and unseen every act, every thought, every motive. And in verse two through five, he basically illustrates just how all-encompassing this knowledge is. Look what he says. You know when I sit down and where I, when I rise up, that's what we call in poetic language a merism, where they give two polar opposites. And what it's saying is all, all of this and everything in between, which means everything, like heaven and earth, right? It's another, another merism that you see in scripture. All, God knows all. He perceives all. He knows when I'm sitting, passing, sitting. He knows when I'm actively walking. He knows it all. There's nothing he doesn't know. And then he goes on to say, you search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, even before I speak, you know what I'm going to say. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You're in front of me. You're behind me. You're, you, you know all things. You're aware of everything. And then you lay your hand on me, which is a beautiful picture of blessing. You, the all-knowing God, bless me. You, you know me in spite of all that you know about me. You bless me. Like a parent puts their hand on a child and blesses them. Isn't it a wonderful thing when the body language, when someone puts their hand on your shoulder and just you know, kind of a, a touch of blessing upon you. This is our God. He's saying this beautiful picture of this God who knows everything. This is how he loves us. David's response in verse six is one of wonder and awe. He's literally blown away, if you will, by this truth about God. Such, such complete knowledge is, is, is beyond a finite human being's ability to fathom. We are just so small compared to this largeness, this, this hugeness of God. Our ability to perceive what is going on is so limited, isn't it? Just look around for a moment. Look around, quick, quickly. Look around, look at the room, look at each other, right? So you do that for a few seconds. And then if I called you back up and then I started asking you questions about the room and about each other, you'd get some of it, you'd, get, you'd miss a lot of it, right? We just perceive so little. There's so, so, so much the eye, the human eye doesn't see. The human heart can't see. Oftentimes, we get just enough to make us dangerous, right? How many times have we wrongly assessed each other because we've got a little piece of information and we don't know the hearts and the motives of people, but we assume certain things and we get into so much trouble as human beings. But God's a perfect judge, right? He knows it all. He knows the subtlety of my heart. He knows it all. I think David here is both humbled and built up by this truth. I think he's terrified by this truth. I think he's encouraged by this truth. So often we play games with one another, creating an image of ourselves that isn't authentic, it isn't real. Many times we're able to fool each other, right? 
We walk into a place like, how are you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm good. I'm fine. Everything's cool. But meanwhile, we're in agony inside. Some of you are in agony right now, and no one knows it. No one is aware of how deeply in pain you are walking because we can't perceive it. But God knows. But God knows. And some of us are saying we love God when in reality, we don't really, right? With our lips, we're even shouting, yeah, yeah, the resurrection, yes, I believe. But Jesus said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They go through the ritual of worship, but their hearts are not there. See, we can fool each other, but we can't fool God. That's sobering, isn't it? Because we can all come in here today and play the game of religion and we can go through the rituals, but God knows my heart perfectly. And he'll judge that way with all his perfection. That's sobering, friends. But it's also comforting to know that God knows everything, right? Why is it? Because ultimately he sees it all. And where others mistakenly judge me, God knows perfectly. I don't have to live before people and impress them. God knows. You know, how many times have you or I been wrongly assessed? I can tell you in pastoral ministry, when you get up in public and you're in front of people, so many times people miss what's really going on, what I'm really about. They don't see it. They think they know, but they don't. But God does, and that's good news. It's good news. Because I live before him, don't I? And he knows my heart. And when others miss it, God knows. You see how sobering and yet encouraging this truth is? God is the all-perceiving God who knows me inside and out. That leads us to the second point. Verses 7 through 12, the all-present one is with us everywhere at all times. Look at verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Not only does God know me inside and out, he's with me at all times, everywhere. He's always with me. And he begins in verse 7 with that statement, that rhetorical question, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? And what's the answer? What's the answer, friends? Nowhere. There's nowhere that you can go out and be outside of God's presence. That's good news and it's sobering news. And he gives more illustrations. He gives more polar opposites here in this text. You notice it? If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Right? If I ascend, verse 7, to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. It doesn't matter if I go all the way up or all the way down and everything in between, God is always there everywhere at all times. That's the point. Another merism. 
the highest heavens or the deepest part of the earth, farthest points of east or west, there is no place where God is not present. No matter how fast or how far I go, I cannot escape his gaze. To try and hide from God is utterly futile, is the implication. In verses 11 and 12, he says, even the darkness is as light to God. So often we live in denial about our lives and we try to spin again a web of image of who we really are. And have you ever noticed when you're feeling guilty, what do, you, what do you typically do when you're feeling guilty? You try to hide. It's part of human nature. It's part of the reason why a lot of our sin takes place in the dark. You ever notice that? A lot of what we do and what, what happens in the culture and society in which we live, we sin in the dark because it's part, of, we want to hide, we want to hide. We're trying to in this weird sort of way even hide from God, but we can't hide from God. You remember Adam and Eve? And when they sinned in the garden, what did they do? They hid. They hid. They tried to hide from God. And God called out, where are you? Now, I find that kind of humorous. God says, where are you? But God wasn't looking for their coordinates. He wasn't sort of saying, you know, he wasn't expecting Adam to say, you'll find us behind the second bush on the left as you cross over the wooden bridge in the garden. God was saying, I need you to come clean. I already know and have seen everything that you guys are doing. Now what I need is for you to be honest about what I know and see. Stop hiding. Get honest with me, God says. We can't escape God's penetrating presence. This is very convicting. You know, even when you feel satisfied that you've adequately hidden from everyone else, God, by his Holy Spirit, often keeps on tapping us, doesn't he? Keeps on tapping us and saying, Rick, Rick, hello, Rick. I know, I see Will you come clean with me? He's telling us that he's present. He sees it all. In fact, I find it very interesting. One of the, the things that happens when we're sinning is we block out the, the presence of God. God hasn't changed. He's there. But what we try to do in order to sin, it's very difficult for you to sin and think and dwell on the presence of God. So in order to sin, what you've got to do is block out that God is there. Block out his presence. It's fascinating how consciousness of the presence of God is a huge part of protection spiritually in the context of your life. My wife sent me this great quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I want to read it to you in whole. It says this, In our members there is a slumbering inclination toward desire which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns as, and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire of revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. 
He loses all reality and only desire for the creature, for the gift, is real. The only reality is the devil. And then he says this, powerful words, listen closely. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. Not hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. Just block out that God sees it all. And I guarantee you, if you've, you've blocked out the presence of God, sin becomes a powerful, a powerful thing in your life. If you are conscious and living constantly with this awareness, God is always in the room. When nobody else is there, he is there. And he's always the most important person in the room. Even when everybody else is compromising. Because God is there, you're called upon to be a person of integrity, of faith. Because he's always, always there and always the most important person in the room. Amen? Amen. We need to think about this, this constant presence of God. But this truth is also incredibly comforting. It's, again, very sobering but comforting. Verse 10 makes it very clear. Look what it says in verse 10. He says, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Even if I go to the farthest parts, the deepest depths of the earth, to the darkest places, you are there with me. I'm not alone. That is such great news. One of the great themes in the Bible is God is with us, his creation. For those who open up their hearts in faith to him, he is with them. Our God is a refuge and strength in times of trouble, right? This is good news, great news. Psalm 23, that well-known, beautiful psalm where the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd. And then he goes, he does this, he does this. And when he's talking about the shepherd and all of his blessings, he leads me, he guides me. He talks about the shepherd in the third person. But when he gets to the dark valley of the shadow of death, that deepest, darkest place, instead of speaking about the shepherd, he speaks to the shepherd, you are with me. He switches from the third person to the second person. In the first three verses, he speaks about the shepherd. In the fourth verse, the darkest place, he speaks to the shepherd. Because he is with us. Amen. And he will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. This is such good news and the ultimate manifestation of that is in what? In the gift of his son, Emmanuel, God with us. How encouraging is this, friends, that our God is with us. Some of you are going through some very dark things right now. And again, nobody knows about it. Or few people know about it. And you haven't said a whole lot to a lot of people. God is with you. And when people can't be there, and when people let you down, he will never let you down. He's the only one that won't let you down. This is great news. This brings us thirdly and finally to the truth that the all-powerful one made each one of us with design and purpose. Look at verse 13. 
For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand I awake, and I am still with you. One final point that David's making here is the reason God sees everything, perceives everything, knows everything, and is always with me is that he is the all-powerful creator who made me. He made you. This incredible knowledge that he's been talking about, this incredible mastery and presence that he has spoken of, went into the making of us, not the undoing of us. This is the incredible part. This amazing God, who's so great beyond human comprehension, is intimately involved with my life. And I'm just this little speck in the universe. It says, like a woman laboring over a piece of tapestry, God literally crafted my life, David says. Verse 13. David recognizes that everything about his body indicates an incredible artist, craftsman at work. The unity and the oneness revealed through diversity and complexity causes him to be lost in praise to this God. Everything that grew in his mother's womb is the work of a great weaver. His skin and his muscles are seen as fabric. God knew and saw him even before he was formed in the womb, before he ever existed in the physical realm. We were in the mind of God. This is mind-boggling. In other words, God sees what man does not see. Not only did God form David, but also planned out the days and the course of his life right down to the smallest detail of his hours and days. You may not understand. You may have a lot of questions this morning about your life and what God is allowing and not allowing. And there may be a lot of mystery. And there ought to be, by the way, because if God is infinite and I'm finite and you accept that gap, there is going to be mystery. There is going to be unanswered questions. You know, when, I get, uh, when our kids were small, we'd get him in, go to Florida, and we'd be in the car for about an hour, an hour and a half. We'd tell them about the two-day trip. And about 10 minutes in, they'd go what? Are we there yet? When are we going to be there? <laughs> they don't have the capacity to perceive what it is we've described to them. And you and I, friends, if you can accept the gap between a toddler and a parent, how much greater is the gap between an infinite God and a finite human being? There will be mystery. It's part of your faith. The secret things belong to God, the scriptures say. We have to accept this. Yes, there is mystery. But know this, that God has designed your life and whatever comes into your life comes through his hands. As he said with Job, right? Job, Job was like, God, I got all these questions and he gets to the end and God doesn't answer any of Job's questions. He just appears to him out of the whirlwind. And when Job sees God's greatness, he gets it. He's silenced. Yes, there is mystery. But I know this. 
that if I'm with God in the storm, it's a better place to be than in the sunshine without him. I understand that faith and trust in God is the best place to be, to anchor my life in him. And he's in awe of this amazing love and care of God. It says in the text, verse 17 and 18, his thoughts, he says, are beyond human comprehension. Your thoughts, God, beyond my imagination. They're precious to me. And he worships God. How do we respond to such an incredible and large vision of God? If we see God in this way, what kind of difference should it make in our lives to understand that he is both great and good? He is transcendent, he is other, he is in a category by himself, he is so beyond anything finite and fallen. And yet he has invaded this finite world, my world, and he cares about little bitty me. He cares about you, he loves you, he is great. And he is good. How does that make a difference in my life? Well, certainly you won't approach God as an object simply to be studied and feared at a distance. Neither will you just casually saunter into his presence and treat him like a good luck charm, like he's your servant to give you the things on your prayer list that you want. Like a doting grandfather. And I'm one of those. Love being a doting grandfather. Praise God, he's not me. He's neither of these. What does it lead us to? Let me give you three things. First, when you see this God clearly, as he is great and good, as David does, it turns us into grace-filled, humble worshipers. If you really get a glimpse of the majesty, the otherness of God, and yet his invasion of our lives in goodness, in love, you will respond in adoration and delight in this God. Interesting, those who really see God clearly in Scripture have no problem responding. They are prostrate like Isaiah, first in humble repentance and humility, and then they're built back up by God. He empties us, and then he fills us with his grace, and they're joy-filled servants and worshipers of God. Do you see it? It's beautiful. It's so amazing. And this is David. David was a man after God's own heart because he had met and seen this great and good God. He had encountered him. And he was so satisfied. Your love, God, is better than life itself, he said in Psalm 63. We need to see God. We need to see him clearly. And when we do, it leads us to adore him, to worship him. The great church father, Augustine, prayed, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, God. We need you, God, more than we need your gifts. Do you know that any gift that God gives you right now, even if he gave you a miracle, maybe you're here today and you're praying for a miracle in your life, some kind of suspension of the natural laws and you say, God, would you give me this? Would you in your grace and mercy give me this? And God gives it to you? Do you know that that miracle is only temporary? 
It's only temporary. Every gift of God is fleeting, fragile, and fractured this side of heaven. Fleeting, fragile, and fractured. The gifts are meant to point us to the giver. There's a great Jonathan Edwards quote that I have in my prayer journal, and it goes like this. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. But God is the sun. These are but streams. But God is the ocean. Friends, the greatest gift of all is the giver himself. Please know that. Everything else is pointing to the treasure of God himself. He's the ocean. He's the sun. All the other stuff are just streams and beams of light pointing to the sun and to the ocean that God is the greatest treasure. He's the only thing that is forever and rock solid. And that's what David sees here. God, you are so amazing. You are my treasure. I stand in awe of you, God. I stand in awe of you and who you are. Friends, this is why worship comes before service. Because the Bible's all about grace and God has to do something in us before he can do something through us. We are not manufacturers, we are distributors. We are distributors of the presence and the power of God. And until we've encountered God and God can fill us with himself, then we can't really be the servants that we're meant to be. It starts with encounter and worship and then it's God in us and through us that does the work. This is the beautiful truth. But that's why worship is the starting point for all true servants of God. You know, sometimes we'll hear people say, don't just stand there, do something. But friends, when it comes to doing something for God, we must first stand still and be captured in awe by the greatness and goodness of this God. Some time ago, I came across this cute story but a woman, a number of years ago, a woman in Kansas City walked into an ice cream shop. And while waiting in line, she turned to find actor Paul Newman. Some of you young people won't know who that is, but Paul Newman was a great actor at one time, standing behind her. And he was in town filming a movie, and she was his biggest fan. And he smiled at her and said, hello. She took one look at those legendary blue eyes, and her knees almost buckled her heart was in her throat, and she tried to speak, but it couldn't come out. Mortified, she turned around. She paid for her ice cream and quickly walked out of the store. Outside, she sat down on a bench and caught her breath. And as she calmed down, she realized she didn't have her ice cream cone. So she was debating walking back in to get it when Paul Newman walked out. You looking for your ice cream cone, he asked. Speechless again, she nodded. You put it in your purse with your change. <laughs> it is amazing, isn't it? We, you, you meet someone that you've always wanted to meet, someone famous or something like that. You get all kind of nervous and fluttery. And... 
When's the last time you were overwhelmed by God's presence and power? By his greatness and goodness? When you were silenced, awestruck? David is here. He is literally blown away by this encounter, thinking about this God. Second, seeing God clearly, it brings us grace-filled security. This psalm is full of statements about just thinking about God's presence. Again, verse 10, we alluded to this a few moments ago. Even there your hand shall lead me in the deepest, darkest place, and your right hand shall hold me. Again, verse 16, you formed me. You know every single day you're with me. You've designed me right down to the smallest detail. He's in awe of God's thoughts about him. If I could count your thoughts, they're more than the sand I wake. And I'm still with you. I'm awestruck by the fact that you, this great God, are with me. So incredible to understand this all knowing, all presence, all powerful God knows, guides, protects, and designs each one of us. The one who runs the universe, the one who runs the universe, is so intricately involved in your life and my life, in relationship with us. And we'll get to spend all of eternity with him through Jesus Christ, right? The fullness of the security really comes in the giving of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The fullness of this love is manifested there. When Jesus left the throne room of heaven to dwell in the pup tent of human flesh and was born in an animal trough, became our servant and died like a common criminal for us. This is the manifestation of the presence and the power of God and the love of God. It's so incredible. It's, it's, it's so incredible. Paul in Romans gets lost. He says, if God is for us in Jesus Christ, who can be against us? There's no enemy that's too big, too great. It doesn't matter what it is, time, death, life, whatever circumstance it may be. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. I'm a conqueror in Jesus Christ. He is with me always. He will never leave me or forsake me in Jesus. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am rock, solid, secure. Nothing in this life or the next can touch me in Jesus. Is that not great news? You know, one of my favorite, it is great news. One of my favorite passages is Philippians 1. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know, sometimes I'll walk in well, a lot, almost every day. I walk into our staff and we pray every morning together. And, and, and I'll, at the end, I'll say, it's a great day to be alive. And they know what's coming next. And then I say, and it's a great day to die in Jesus Christ. Live or die, I cannot lose in Jesus. I am utterly, completely secure 
And you know what that does? It just frees us to live life the way we're supposed to live it, doesn't it? I can be a risk taker, a godly risk taker in the context of knowing the security that God has given me in his son, Jesus. I pray that you know the depth of God's presence through Jesus and his security today. Thirdly and finally, when you really see this God clearly, the one who alone is true, sovereign, God, great and good, leads to a grace response of total surrender. This is really the rest of the chapter. Notice verse 19. It really brings us to the climax of the psalm. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Some strong words here. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any, be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David changes from looking up to God to looking, now he's looking around and he's looking within himself. And he says, my loyalty to you, God, being who you are, is is something that I'm committed to, both from without and within. I, I hate what you hate, God. I'm opposed to what you are opposed to, God, the evil that is in the world. David, I don't think, has personal animosity here towards the wicked. It may sound that way to you, uh, but simply he does not want to be associated with them because they are enemies of God. They are enemies, they are his enemies because they are God's enemies. And I don't think... I don't think he's vengeful here. He's seeking the final and righteous judgment of God here. It's revealed by the fact that he wants the same evil that is out there in the enemies of God extracted from his own life as well. He hates the evil in his own life as much as he hates it out there. And so he says, God, not only do I oppose what you oppose out there, but I am asking you to search my heart and take that evil from my soul as well. Root out anything that may be disloyal to such a great and good God. God, would you put your finger on anything in my life that may grieve you or hurt you and lead me in the way of your divine favor and blessing, oh God. Help me to be by your grace what you've called me to be. Friends, if we are wondering why there is not more devotion to God in our lives, more of a commitment to worship Him, more joy in the security of His love, more of a response of surrender, total surrender to this God, I think we can find the answer right here. Right here. How do we see God, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. Is he great and good beyond comprehension today? God, give us a fresh encounter like David had with your greatness and your goodness and we know that will change us from the inside out by your grace. God, lead us. Lead us to meet with you, to encounter you for your glory and our good.
Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful prayer of David as he acknowledged your amazing greatness and goodness and that this great and good God is so intimately involved in our lives. Ultimately, this side of the cross and the resurrection, we know that the fullness of this is manifested through your son, Jesus. And Lord, we praise you for that treasure. And I pray that each of us here today would see the treasure you've given us in your son, the giving of yourself. You didn't just give us another gift from yourself. You gave us yourself. May we see him more clearly. May we see that you are this great and good father who loves us so perfectly. And may that change us, truly change us, to live differently because it's about you in us and through us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.